0: Thank you for listening to a Sunday morning sermon from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these sermons, or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com. And now, here's this week's sermon.
1: Well, good morning, church. Let's open our Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to be looking at the first 12 verses, as Matt read for us A little bit earlier. If you're visiting Christ Church, we're glad you're with us this morning. My name's Mark. I have the privilege of being one of the ministers, and this is Michael DeFazio. He's our teaching pastor, also a professor at Ozark Christian College. And so, uh, we are in this series called the Gospel, and we are going to treat the text that you know as the Beatitudes a little differently than we normally would preach through a text. Michael and I are going to have a dialogue about understanding what the Beatitudes, as we call them, what they are, how they're misunderstood and how we're supposed to pay attention to them in probably a unique way. I want to give you the background and set up what this passage is addressing uh, as we go forward. Uh, Jesus is in the period of recognition. Uh, We have identified five movements in the gospel stories, and those movements tell us of the arrival, stage one. Stage two was obscurity, where Jesus was gathering some disciples and some, some followers But it wasn't a public thing. It was, he was going from village to village and starting to gain a crowd. And then there's the recognition, where some people began to recognize him as the Messiah, and others began to recognize him as a threat. And Jesus would gather uh, people together, and he would teach, and he would proclaim the promise of a coming kingdom, and that he was establishing this and introducing them to that. When you get to Matthew chapter 5, there's the unique moment where Jesus gathers those 12 apostles he called, we talked about it two weeks ago. When he called those 12 men after a night of prayer, and the other disciples, the other followers that were with him, and then the crowds began to gather, and uh, I don't know if it's Luke particularly, but one of the gospel writers called them the masses, just a large body of people that were coming to hear this teacher, and he gathered them on a hillside near the Sea of Galilee, and using the natural acoustics of the hillside, he began to instruct them. He began to offer them an invitation. And in that moment, which we call the Sermon on the Mount, uh, Jesus will, in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, will proclaim uh, this message to these people, an invitation to be a part of what he is doing and what he's coming to do. And uh, I think if we can give you a statement that, he and, that Michael and I concluded that we'd like to give you for this particular understanding of the Beatitudes, it's this, the kingdom of Jesus blesses the unconventional. What he's doing on this Sermon on the Mount, what he's doing with it, is he's inviting people that have never been invited before. He's offering an invitation to people who have been rejected. He's not going after the super elite. He's not going after the super educated or the super rich or the super powerful. He's not even going after the super influential. He's going after the everyday common person, the ones who have never been invited before. He begins it, by these things called the Beatitudes. It sounds like blessed are those who, blessed are those who, blessed are those who. But what we want to begin today is have a conversation as a church about how we're supposed to receive these, how we're supposed to pay attention to them. And what I want to begin from the, at the start is to tell you this. They are Jesus' Beatitudes, not ours. So we need to understand what he's doing with them before we can understand what we're doing with them. And if that makes sense, then I'll let Michael uh, begin with our first question, pose it to you. What was Jesus doing with these Beatitudes we had read to us a few moments ago?
0: Sure, yes. It's such a uh, kind of an obviously good question, I think, to start the conversation. And I love that... thinking about the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount with respect to this idea that this is the face of recognition like you just talked about, and just with that thought you ended with there, that these are Jesus's, not ours. And I think so much of what Jesus is doing in this section is he is defining for us and maybe redefining for us what he's about, and who he is. Mm -hmm. So you sometimes think you recognize somebody, but then is it really them or not? I remember I was just thinking when you were talking uh, about that word recognition. I was in an airport recently, and I thought I saw somebody that I knew, and he was like, there's an old friend of mine. He'd got to about 20 feet in front of me, and I was just about to say, bro, what's happening, man? And then I realized it's not him, and it would have been really embarrassing had I done that, (laughs) And so sometimes you think, well, I recognize what this is, but do we really? And so that's this, this trick with this section of Scripture is to let Jesus define it for us. And in asking the question, what are the Beatitudes, I think it probably would benefit us to talk a little bit about what they're not. And I, I don't remember the first time I read the Beatitudes. Uh, I don't know how old I would have been when I became aware of them, but I remember like m- the, the first two things that come up for me are, first of all, why are we saying blessed? That's a strange way to say the word. You know, we don't say, I work it really hard today, <laughs> you know. We, work, work it, get it, never mind. So that was the first thing for me. It just was a little bit odd, and we still do it, and whatever. It's all good. Second thing is, what's going on? What's happening here? And we've maybe you have or haven't, I don't know, we don't know, heard different teachings. I've heard some teachings about these that I think were maybe problematic. I think the people saying it meant well, but I think they were missing it. And one thing that the Beatitudes are not is a stepladder of spiritual growth. I think that's the wrong way to look at it. There's, you know, step one is blessed are the poor in spirit, and then to that you add this, and then this, and then that, and then eventually you get up to where you're persecuted, because that's who the really, really awesome Christians are, and it's like this, okay, how do I take it from step one to step two to step three? That's, I think, a wrong understanding of this. He is painting a picture, not laying out a stepladder, and similarly, I think it's wrong to look at him as a list of rules, a list of, here's what you're supposed to do. Here, here are the things that you got to do for God to like you. We do that with these. We turn them into a matter of religious performance. And if I, if I abide by these rules, then God will be my friend. And I just think he's looking at us going, no, like, that, that's just not even what this is. And there are places in, in the sermon, we'll, we'll get there very soon, where in the Sermon on the Mount, what we're calling it, uh, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, where Jesus will absolutely tell us what to do. He will say, here, concretely, you don't need to think about it much more because you know what I'm talking about. Just go do it. I think about here in a couple of weeks when we talk about anger. He doesn't spend a whole lot of time analyzing anger. It's more, hey, when you're going to worship and you realize you and somebody aren't good, go like, work that out, then come back and worship. So concrete steps. But right here, he's not doing that yet. I love this distinction you've been making about this is to be received, not achieved. Received, not achieved. So what is it if it's not a step ladder and if it's not a list of rules, requirements for righteousness? What is it? Um, And the phrase that he mentioned that we've been talking about is, we think this is an invitation to a kingdom. And remembering that just before Matthew 4, or Matthew 5, comes Matthew 4, and in Matthew 4, Jesus goes public and says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is here. It is available to you, the reign of God. Like, God is reigning, and Jesus is bringing his kingdom from heaven to earth and making it available to us, and he says it's here now, and it demands a rethinking, a repenting, a reframing of, of the way you think about the world. So I think Jesus is inviting us into his kingdom and inviting us to become the kind of people who this kingdom makes sense for. So I, I, I got an analogy, and I'm a little nervous about the analogy because it's a political analogy, and we're not huge fans of politics, so maybe I'll make it and then you can fix it, especially <laughs> not right now. But if you think about it sort of like... Um, if once a person decides to run for office, right? they make the public declaration, and then they usually give some sort of a speech that clarifies, here's what my program is going to be. Here's what I'm trying to accomplish. Here's what I, I came to this, why I want to be a ruler. This is why I want to race. This is why I want you to let me be your leader. And I think the Sermon on the Mount is sort of like a campaign speech, if we could make that connection. And the, the Beatitudes, the beginning part, is, is the part where a person says, hey, you know, here's the kind of people I'm going to benefit. If you are, and different politicians, differently, if you do not have a fair wage, or if you do not think you're paying the right amount of taxes, or if you do not have proper health care, if you put me in charge, then the people who are in this situation are going to be blessed by me being the leader. And that sort of is the picture I get of what Jesus is doing here. I'm bringing a kingdom and I'm going to start by just painting a picture for you, picture for you of the kind of people that, um, that my kingdom, my reign is going to benefit. So what would you add to or take away from that?
1: No, I think, I think it said he's, he's talking to a group of people that have never been invited to anything like this before. You'll notice that Jesus said the physician doesn't come for the healthy, he comes for the sick. And so we do this a lot here, and it's part of it is to be provocative. It's to remind ourselves we're not all that. If you come to church thinking you're all that, I ask you, why do you come to church? We come to church because we know we're not all that. We have no hope. If he's, if he's not all that, we're all a mess. But because he's all that, we can be what we are, and he will, he will give us an invitation to be a part of it. And that's this whole concept of being blessed. And only Jesus can bless some of us in the condition that he's identified. That's why the invitation is, you know, using this terminology, we don't achieve this we receive it and if you try to achieve it he's not necessary if you're open to receiving it then he becomes the ultimate goal and source of everything and that's the invitation to an unconventional group of people in a very unconventional way which results in his death on the cross and his resurrection
0: so we're kind of floating around this big you know heady what is what are the beatitudes type question um, let's try to bring it down a little bit and, and start to turn our direction toward, here's the question, what do we do with it? Yeah. So how can we think about or respond to this in a way that when we walk out of here, Jesus has been able to do what he wants to do through this text?
1: The reason that Michael and I agree and wanted, wanted to handle this particular message this particular way was to engage... because we don't trust each other. Yeah. So,
0: you know, we just...
1: <laughs> I'm watching yes. over him. He's he watching He gets no mic me, left so. alone. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, is because I have to repent. I haven't done it here, but in my previous ministry, I preached eight weeks on how to do the Beatitudes. And I had to ask God to forgive me for that, because that's misleading. Because think about the logic of it. If you have to do all of these, unless you die and are persecuted at the end, you didn't make it. I mean, think about it. If we're going to make these, the contemporary Ten Commandments, or the Eight Commandments of the church then you better get killed for Jesus, or you just almost got there. It just, it logically makes no sense. <laughs> when you put it like yeah. that. yeah. <laughs> so, you know, uh, and so because of that, what it is, is it's not, re- it's not achieving it, it's receiving it. And it's how to live the good life. And that seems so contrary. And I'm indebted to Dallas Willard in a book called The Divine Conspiracy for awakening my heart to the teaching method of Jesus and the implications of it. Because I always thought you have to do these things so you don't mourn enough. Get good at mourning. Really? That you're not peaceful enough. So start practicing peace. And you're not persecuted enough, so get yourself killed. It just makes no sense. What it is, is what is the good life? And the good life sounds like this in the kingdom. Jesus is inviting you into a better life than this world can ever give you, although you'll suffer. That he's inviting you into the blessings of the kingdom, although your life's not always going to be a Disney movie. It's not always going to end in 22 minutes with great laughter and the family around the table. Sometimes we live in a jacked up world and we're as jacked up as it is. And yet there's blessings to be found for those that let Jesus be their all. It's an invitation to the good life. But it's not the way our world defines the good life. When you read Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, and we're going to encourage you this week to read it at least three times. You could read it all three chapters in a day. It might take you 40 minutes to read them. But when you listen to what Jesus is offering you, it is contrary to what the world's offering you. Yet the world can't bless you. You bless the world. But in the kingdom, Jesus blesses you. In fact, Mike, I'm going to go off script for just a quick second Let's play with uh, Tom Michael, who's a wonderful man, came up and talked to us about how we don't use the word blessed in our society. The word was once translated happy. Why don't we use happiness instead of blessed?
0: Yeah, it's a good question. So the, um, it's a funny word underneath this word blessed. There's a few different words for blessed in the original languages of the scriptures. And this one could sometimes be translated congratulations or blessed or happy, happy are the. And I, I love what he said. His point was, you know, let's say happier the poor in spirit, happier the me, happier those who mourn, because it is part of that point of what he's saying. Now, we avoid that word sometimes because of what we've turned it into. We've turned it into, you know, happiness is sitting around, uh, you know, I don't know, the right people around my table with the right things on the table and the right things in the garage and the house is a certain size and my bank accounts are full and I've got everything yeah. that I want. And in some ways, maybe he's right. Maybe we should say the word happy because I was just thinking about what you were saying with the good life. So if we were to put this in terms of here's what to do, we let Jesus redefine for us the good life. And so if we're now using this word happiness, I guess the point would be let Jesus redefine yeah. happiness. So we, we don't use it because maybe we're unnecessarily afraid of being misunderstood, but that's part of Jesus's point is, I'm going to use a word that describes what you all want, but I'm going to talk about it in a way wow. that you're not used to.
1: See, I come back to one of the definitions I discovered in preparing for today's dialogue was that the word blessed or happy used by Jesus would have been deeply satisfied.
0: Hmm. That's good.
1: So deeply satisfied is the person who is the person who, even when I say good life, I want to recant <laughs> because you just define the good life in the American mind. I got enough food, I got enough friends, I got enough this, I got enough that, I got all of these things and I'm happy. But how many people that have everything they want are happy? Yeah. But deeply satisfied, think about it when you read it this week, That's good. deeply satisfied is the person who, who who, and it's receiving what Jesus wants us to have. So maybe we'll define that going further as it's the satisfied life, Mm -hmm. one that's worth living, one that has implications and influence in a way that matters to the best part of who we are. Uh, So what we'd like to do now is we've kind of been in the clouds a little bit and told you that maybe it's possible that some of the ways guys like us have taught you before may not have captured what Jesus was trying to teach so, let's take a couple of these. There's sure. eight of them. Let's go ahead. You're going to take two of them. And So, when Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, what in mm-hmm. the heck does that mean? Yeah, what
0: does that mean, and what do we do with it? I love, I love j- kind of digging into the specifics, and I love this one. I don't know if you're supposed to have a favorite beatitude, but I like this one. And um, it's the first one, blessed are the poor, or happy, you know, satisfied, deeply satisfied are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Um, So poor in spirit, what what, what does that mean? What what, what does that phrase, you know, kind of bring up in our minds? Obviously, he's using poverty, but he's talking about it in a spiritual way. So if, if you're poor, you don't have anything, which means you're totally dependent or you're totally reliant on other people to take care of you. And to be poor in spirit is to recognize, like, I can't... Myself, provide all of my needs. I can't control things. I can't be in charge of things. There's not enough in me to make life go well in terms of connecting with spiritual realities. And so, one of the ways I like to think about happier the poor in spirit or blessed are the poor in spirit is uh, you will be happy when you acknowledge your spiritual need. When you recognize that looking within only gets you to a certain point, but you actually find a hole there that needs to be filled by something outside of yourselves. And how different is this from how we think about the good life or the satisfied life in our culture? I mean, step one is be independent. Value number one is total autonomy. I don't want to be dependent on anyone for anything. I'm just, I want to be able to totally self-sufficient, taking care of all of my needs on my own. And Jesus comes and essentially just, just pokes that balloon and says, that's just a lie. That's just a fake idea that people made up to make themselves feel better about their failed attempts to pursue deep satisfaction. Let me replace it instead with, blessed are you when you're poor in spirit. So what do we do with that? Kind of depends on who you are at some level. And this is where the idea that Jesus, the kingdom Jesus brings, blesses the unconventional comes into play. Because if you're a person who's in this room and you think, man, I'm not really sure if I should be here because maybe the roof right over my head is actually going to cave in. You know what I mean? If you look around this room and think, man, look at all these good people. Look at all these religious, God-fearing people. They're so great, but I'm not one of them. I don't belong here. You need to hear Jesus' words saying, you belong here. Mm That's, I think, what to do with this blessed are the poor in spirit. If you're a person who thinks, I don't belong here, you're exactly the person who belongs here. Because Jesus is saying, you're in the kind of place where you can receive my kingdom. You get it. You recognize that you can't do it on your own. And so you're going to let me be Jesus. You're not going to try to run things. You're not going to try to be your own ruler. You're not going to try to be sovereign. You're going to let me come in and take over. So that's one of them. Now, on the other hand, on that one, if you come in here thinking, man, I got this. I'm good. Like spiritually speaking, some of y'all need this. I'm just here because others need me or whatever it may be. I don't know. Like for, for if that's us, then we need to repent and recognize, recognize, notice what Jesus is saying. What he's telling us is we have actually, we've, we've organized our mind and our life in such a way that we are hindering his blessing. Mm-hmm. He can't actually do for us what he wants to do for us because we've essentially, by our own spiritual arrogance, closed ourselves off from him in our lives. That's, that's one. I'll try to be quicker on the other one. Another one of my favorites is, blessed are the pure in heart, happy are the pure in heart, for they will see God. If, if you think pure in heart, again, take some time to think about the phrase, these are the people who see God, pure in heart. What does that mean? It, it doesn't mean, like, those who are super innocent, although there's nothing wrong with innocence. But the word heart in the Bible is about uh, your core, your center, what drives you. If there's an arrow coming out of your life, your heart is what that arrow is pointed at. So that's your heart, your core, your center. And to be undivided or p- to be pure is is to be undivided. That's what the word means. And so if you think about you mix two substances, it's no longer a, a, a pure substance. You wouldn't use this word to describe that substance. This is a word that is one thing and one thing only. And so again, when I paraphrase these in my mind, I like to say happier those who live from an undivided center for they will see God and Jesus is saying if you're a person who is totally focused on loving and pleasing and worshiping and working with and alongside God then you will be a person who sees him and so this is now hear me well too this is not just like God is the first item on my list this is God is the paper on which my list is written so all of the different areas of my life are focused on on what God wants them to be. And if you do that, then he says, then you'll be a person who sees him. And so if you're thinking to yourself, man, I don't ever see God. Other people seem to know God and see God and have these experiences of God. Maybe part of the reason is you don't actually want to. And again, I don't want to be too harsh because it's not do this and God will be pleased. It's if we do this, then we become the kind of people who God's reign, who Jesus' kingdom can bless. So those are a couple for me. That's
1: good. <clears throat> I chose too that... Uh little bit tougher for me uh, when Michael and I were talking about these. So he said, blessed or deeply satisfied are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness for they will be filled. And truthfully, I don't know that I've ever, ever truly been hungry. And I thank God for that. But I also think there's a lack of character development associated with that. Uh, You know, I get perturbed like most parents when my kids say, I'm starving. You don't have a clue what starving is. I've been thirsty to the point that I thought if I didn't get something to drink reasonably soon, I was going to be in trouble. But it says, when you hunger and thirst for righteousness. Now, remember, and this is a term we've been bantering back and forth that we stole from an author. Be careful we don't turn these into, you know, I'm saved by my works. Mm -hmm. This also isn't suggesting I'm saved by my attitude. But there are moments in our lives, just see if you can track with me. There's moments in our lives... Where bad things happen, and there is a hunger inside of you for the right thing to finally happen. Do you understand? There's a moment where you say, "I can't take it anymore. that's not right. when children get harmed." And Carolyn's talking about taking care of young ladies who are being trafficked or, or who are in these trades that are and you look at that, and there's, is, is there not in each one of us this fiber to cry out and say, "That's not what?" It's not right. And it's got to become right. And there's that hunger and passion. Jesus said, in my kingdom, I'm going f- to take care of that. I'm going to take care of it. You're not going to. I'm going to. And I'm going to use that zeal you have to make a difference. Whether it's an act of unrighteousness done to you or done to someone else. As we open ourselves up to who Jesus is and what he promises, we desire more of him, not less. I love the paper God is the paper on which our dreams are written. And when you understand that this world isn't even what God wanted it to become, then there's this hunger and zeal. And I love the fact that my Savior says, Mark, I'm going to fix everything that's broken. I'm going to make right everything that's been made wrong. And doesn't that give you hope? For people that sat in the audience that day on that hillside and who have never caught a break who have been abused by the Romans and the Jewish leaders and had no place at all for themselves? And Jesus said, no, you keep pursuing what's right. I'm going to take care of that for you. To me, that gives me great hope. The last one is, blessed are those that are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's a fun one. Yeah. Yeah. This is heavy, heavy, heavy. Because in America, we haven't faced much of this. Oh, people tell us we're idiots. They tell us we're dogmatic. They want to take our right to have a voice in our community. But that's across the globe today, be assured of this. Across the globe today, people are going to have to choose whether they live or die by whether they turn their back on Jesus or not. Every single day, people go to meet Jesus by death because they refuse to turn their back on him. And Jesus said, I need you to know that when it comes to its worst, and he demonstrated this by the way he was brutalized and killed. He said, I need you to understand, blessed are those that are persecuted for righteousness' sake. If someone persecutes you because you're obnoxious, you earned it. But if they persecute you because you stood for Jesus, he said, you have the kingdom of heaven. He did not say one day. He said, it's yours. Mm-hmm. You, you entered by my invitation into the difficulty of following me because Jesus will say to be my disciple, come and die. So he concludes his vision, his platform statement. If you follow me, it may cost you your life, but don't you think for a second you're not a part of this kingdom that's eternal. And even in the book of Revelation, it said the martyrs sit right at the feet of God at his throne in a very special place, having never turned their back on the one who would never turn his back on us. So he's not saying go out and get persecuted if you love me. He says when it comes, love me. And you are a part of my kingdom. So it's not salvation by works. It's not salvation by attitude. It really comes down to a much bigger issue that we want to kind of conclude with in our final thoughts on this. We've only given you four of the eight, but we want you to see, don't turn these into how you achieve God's love. Instead, they become demonstrations of having received God's love and how you live those out. So, Michael, what are your final thoughts as we head toward conclusion?
0: Yeah, so for me, I think the final thought, and it comes from Dallas Willard, who you mentioned earlier in that book, Divine Conspiracy. He talks about how one of the most beneficial things you can do if you want Jesus to actually be your teacher is to back up and ask, well, who are my teachers? And that doesn't just mean who are the people who've stood up in front of the classrooms in which I was sitting, but who are the people or or cultures or or influences or bands or whatever it may be that have shaped my thinking on this? Who has taught me to Pursue satisfaction the way I pursue satisfaction. So let me be concrete. What I'd encourage you to do this week is to just take some time. I don't know how much time you have. If you do it for 15 minutes, that's better than nothing. To take some time and to sit down and say, what are the things I think I need to be deeply satisfied? Not just what would I say, but honestly, like when I don't have this, I think something's really wrong. So make a list of here's what I think the deeply satisfying life looks like. And then ask the question, who taught me to think like that? Was it a parent? Was it an uncle? Was it a high school guidance counselor? Was it a, was it a youth minister? Was it, you know, a, my friends? Is it my boss at work? Is it the American culture at large? Some of those would be good things. Some of those will be bad things. But the whole point is, look at your list evaluate who's taught you to think like that and then compare it to what Jesus says and just talk to him. Have a conversation with Jesus about how you want him to be your teacher and you want to think the way he wants you to think and you want to pursue the kind of life he wants. So the question for me, the final thought question out of this is, who are my teachers? And analyzing and evaluating that can help us really actually let Jesus be our teacher the way I think we would say we want him to be.
1: It's so one of the questions that Willard brings up in, in his treatment of the Sermon on the Mount was asking yourself the question, when did it become optional concerning Jesus' teachings. When did Christians think, well, that's a neat teaching for then, but it's not for us now? I want to go to a different teacher that uh, in a sermon I heard him speak on Genesis in preparation for some classes we've taught in the last year on Wednesday nights. Uh, Dr. Timothy Keller talked about Genesis chapter 3, and one of his insights into it I'd never seen before, but it so made sense to me, it snapped into grid something I need to hold on to. And he said that when Adam and Eve were in the garden and the serpent spoke to them and began to question God, did God really say this? Did God really mean that? God wouldn't do that to you. What Keller says is it comes down to two basic questions. Do I believe that God is wise enough to trust? And do I believe that he's good enough to trust? When you read Matthew chapter five, six, and seven, the sermon on that mountain that day, and he's casting his vision an invitation to every single one of us to follow him. It's easy for us to dismiss that as an antique teaching to a group of ignorant people a long time ago. Don't do that. If Jesus is true then, he's true today. It's for us. The question each one of us has to answer in the core of our being, is God wise enough to trust? And is he good enough to trust? So when Jesus tells us these incredibly hard things coming over the next few weeks, and I'm gonna encourage you, I know the summer it's easy to do other things on the weekend. Don't miss these teachings, even if you have to come back and get them on podcasts or watch the video. Don't become disconnected from one of the most important things Jesus taught repeatedly. When he tells us what to do with anger or with lust or with divorce, when he tells us what to do with these issues, ask yourself this question, is he wise enough to trust? And is he good enough to trust? And if he is, blessed or deeply satisfied will be the person that trusts him. Let's stand together.
0: Thank you for listening to a Sunday morning sermon from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these sermons or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com.